0: Alisa Childers here. Last weekend I had the honor of teaching a breakout session at the first annual Women in Apologetics Conference at Biola University. So on today's podcast we're going to do something a little different and listen to the talk I gave called Almost the Real Thing: How Progressive Christianity Has Hijacked the Gospel. An atheist philosophy professor, his faith is challenged for the first time, dismantled, and he walks away from his faith. Or there's another familiar story that I just heard from a woman in one of the apologetics classes I was teaching at my church. Her daughter grew up in church, loved Jesus, went on mission trips, summer camp. Only she had never been exposed to any worldview other than Christianity. So she went off to college, and she met a pantheist. And now she's a pantheist. Well, so these are familiar scenarios, but we're all at an apologetics conference for women, so I don't have to convince you of the importance of preparing our kids to engage intellectually with the challenges they're going to face when they leave the safety of our churches and our homes, right? This is something we talk a lot about at apologetics conferences. But there's a challenge that not many people are aware of, and it's equally as powerful and equally as dangerous. And this is a challenge that I encountered as an adult. See, much like that student whose faith was dismantled by the atheist philosophy professor, my faith was dismantled not within the walls of a classroom, but in the pews of a church. And more specifically, this was a self-proclaimed evangelical, non-denominational, church in the heart of middle tennessee right in the bible belt where i live this church be, went on to self-describe as a progressive christian community so how many of you have heard the term progressive christianity okay and how many of you have heard the emergent church you've heard that term Okay, it's very similar. We're almost always kind of talking about the same thing, except the emergent church has kind of been co opted by this term progressive Christianity. The people within the emergent church that were kind of fighting for some sort of orthodoxy lost out, and now the whole thing's just kind of called progressive Christianity. But to give you a little background of what led me to this place, I want to tell you a little bit about my story. See, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with parents who modeled for me what I call a very genuine Christianity. They weren't perfect. My life wasn't perfect, but I had parents who modeled prayer and repentance and Bible study. They they openly did those things in front of me. And another key element is that it was very important to my mom that we be exposed to homelessness and uh, people who didn't have all of the things we had. So growing up, I grew up in L.A., She'd have us every weekend working the soup lines at the Fred Jordan Mission. So I regularly rubbed elbows with prostitutes and drug addicts and homeless people, watching my mom love on these people and treat them with the love of Christ, watching the power of God at work in people's lives. I, as a child, got to see the power of God transform the lives of prostitutes, transform the lives of drug addicts and uh, drug dealers. I regularly saw these things happen. And so my faith wasn't blind. I cannot say that I had a blind faith. My faith was informed, but my faith was intellectually weak and untested, and I didn't find that out until I was already a mom and attending a church in Tennessee. As Rachel mentioned before, I spent seven years on the road with the group Zoe Girl, which was so much fun. We got to play all kinds of amazing venues. I got to play Madison Square Garden. I got to play the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I had so many amazing experiences. But at the end of our time together as Zoe Girl, it's like when we all kind of started getting married and wanting to have kids. And so I had my first baby. And I was buying into the lie a little bit that the culture tells us that, you know, my purpose is not going to be in this, you know, this baby here. And this is her, actually. Aww. That's a Dylan. She's my little skeptic. That's a whole other talk. But so glad I discovered apologetics, if nothing else, for her. But so she was about eight months old. And I was doing some solo music. And so this church, am I on? I think I'm on this mic here. I think, Okay. Um, So this church in Tennessee invited me to come share some music. So I went there. I led worship. And as I shared yesterday, it was like an instant fit. We felt, my husband and I, such a connection with the people of this church. We loved the pastor. We loved how he thinks outside the box. He was an independent thinker. And I had not really been exposed to a lot of that. And at the time, I was seeing some things within evangelicalism that I was questioning. Rightly so. There were some things we'd always been doing. Like, Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Maybe we aren't, you know, dealing with this issue with the most possible love. And he was addressing those things. And that was very attractive to us. And so we attended the church for about eight months. Eight months in, the pastor meets with me and he says, you know, I really see a potential in you. He says, I think you're really smart. And I want you to join this inner circle study ministry group. And, you know, I'm telling you, I had my Bible, my notebook, my pen. Like, I was ready to study the Bible and go into ministry. And so I got to the first couple of classes and started to feel a little bit weird about what I was hearing. And I kind of didn't know what to make of it. And then the defining moment came about two classes in. There's about 15 of us in this really super exclusive class. And the pastor looked around and he said, let me just kind of take the temperature of the room and let me ask you guys how many of you like still believe that the earth is 6000 years old and that Adam and Eve like really existed. And I'm like I mean I had never heard any I didn't know there were any people let alone well Christians that didn't believe Adam and Eve existed and I'd never thought about the age of the earth now, as a side note, looking back with what I know now, I realize these are two very different questions with very different theological ramifications. But at the time, I just, I just thought everybody thought the earth was 6,000 years old and Adam and Eve were real people. And it was, just blew my mind. And I remember looking down at the desk and feeling like I had been kicked in the gut. Because I, didn't, I knew that it was wrong what he was saying, but I didn't know How to answer it. I didn't know how to interact with what he was even saying. So with shame, I was just staring down at this table. And over the course of the next four months, that was just the beginning. Everything from the deity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and mostly the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible was sort of put on this intellectual chopping block and just hacked away, picked apart, deconstructed right before my eyes, And it was anguishing. And it sent me into what I can only describe as, not to use a cliche, but a dark night of the soul, where for the first time in my life, I wasn't just doubting what I had believed about God for all those years. I was actually doubting whether or not God actually existed, feeling foolish for praying when my daughter fell down a few steps. See, up until that point, I didn't ever doubt my faith. I'm kind of now what I, with what I know now, embarrassed to say that. But the extent of my doubt was when I was about seven years old, I asked my hippie musician dad, you know, I said, hey, dad, how do you know God really exists if we can't see him? And my hippie musician dad was like, well, you know, you feel him. And I was like, yeah, I feel him. All right, I'm good. And that was the extent of it for me. That was it. Great answer, Dad. I mean, I'd like to see an atheist try to take that one on, you know? I mean, I was like rock solid. I didn't realize the importance of an intellectual faith. And so the church that I left went on to become a self-titled progressive Christian community. Now they've disbanded and kind of branched off into Unitarian and then kind of a new Fangled kind of spirituality community that they've created, which sort of kind of logically keeps heading towards atheism. Because honestly, some of the arguments, most of the arguments, are really atheistic in nature, just with a Christian veneer. That I, I learned that as I was going through it. So as I'm going through this dark night, the soul, I was begging God, please, God, send me a lifeboat. And I felt so alone. And I remember just sitting in my rocking chair, rocking my little baby girl, singing hymns into the darkness, Knowing, hoping kind of somewhere in there that he was out there and that these truths were real, but really feeling like there was nobody who could answer this. Like I thought I was just going to have to jump into a blind faith because I, I've never heard any of this stuff and I don't think anybody can answer it, but I prayed and I said, God, send me somebody, send me somebody that can talk to me about these things that that can help walk me through this. And as I shared yesterday, I was driving my car, tuning my radio, and I hear this angelic gentleman's voice with an Indian accent. And it was Ravi Zacharias. And he was just calmly and intelligently interacting with all of these objections that had come up in this class. It was like the Lord ordained that one radio program just to boom, 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 address all of the things that had been going on in the class. So I got his app on my phone, and through his app, I found the Southern Evangelical Seminaries app for their yearly conference, and I started listening to all of those lectures. Then I started taking classes, and I discovered the wonderful world of apologetics, which was that lifeboat that God sent me in my dark time of doubt. And I had to laugh at Hillary's last uh, talk when she talked about the nap doubt, like, I still get the nap doubt. It happened the other day, I hadn't like, slept a lot, and I took the kids to school, and I came back home, and I got in bed, and I said, I know I'm not supposed to be in bed, and my husband walked in, and he's like, it's okay. I'm like, but do you realize how crazy, the things we believe? Like, we believe that a guy, a first century Jew, raised from the dead, and he's coming back on a flying horse. Like, we believe this. And the next thing I remember, I woke up four hours later filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit and feeling great. So yeah, I totally <laughs> believe that nap can cure out sometimes. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about what do progressive Christians believe, because that's an important thing to understand. And then we're going to talk about how can we prepare ourselves and our kids to interact with their ideas. So in order to define progressive Christianity, the first thing we have to define is good old-fashioned regular Christianity, right? Because we can't know how something's progressing unless we know the starting point. So Christianity can be a bit tough to define, as every progressive you meet will remind you. (laughs) Because Christians have famously argued about virtually every theological point for the 2,000 years that we've been called Christians. So it can be a bit tough to define, but there are core beliefs. There are things that Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years, and they continue to affirm that define what Christianity is, that makes Christianity unique in the world, and that always has made Christianity unique in the world. So we could look at Bible verses, we could look at doctrinal statements, we could look at creeds, but for the purposes of today's talk, we're going to look at one creed. And this is arguably the earliest creed in the life of Christianity. This creed, most scholars, even the ultra-skeptical ones, will date to a really early time. So this is something Christians were affirming within three to seven years of Jesus' resurrection. Even a really skeptical scholar named Dominic Crossan with the Jesus Seminar. Do you all know Jesus Seminar? He puts this even at like 18 months after the resurrection. So it's not really controversial that this is a very early creed that is recognized as something that early Christians affirmed. Now, what's interesting is you can find this creed in your Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians was written between 53 and 55 AD. That's about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. But the creed that's within 1 Corinthians, the creed that Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, is that creed that's super early. Okay, so this creed is very important. And the reason it is is because Paul makes a distinction with this creed when he records it. He says, what I'm about to tell you is of first importance. First importance. So right there, Paul's making a distinction that some beliefs are more important than others. He's saying, what I'm about to say here is the most important thing. All right, let's take a look at the screen. So it says, for I delivered to you as of, here we go, first importance. What I also received. And here it goes. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then he says, finally, to me, and he records his encounter with the risen Jesus. So I find four things in this creed, four beliefs that were of utmost first importance for the earliest Christians. Number one, the death of Jesus, that Jesus died. Now, this may seem kind of uncontroversial, but when you're in a world where people don't even believe Jesus existed, or as in the case of Islam, that he never died, it's kind of an important belief. Now, connected with the death of Jesus is the term for our sins. Now, this is super important because right here in the earliest creed, we have the idea of substitutionary atonement starting to form, don't we? That the death of Jesus wasn't just some act of love. It wasn't just uh, Jesus being murdered by an angry mob. He actually made a sacrifice for our sins, and that's going to be really important as we continue with our talk. The third thing according to the scriptures and it actually says this twice in this creed it connects the death of jesus for our sins according with the scriptures and the resurrection of jesus according to the scriptures so it was very important to those first century believers that they connected their beliefs with the truthfulness the reliability of the scriptures very important number four the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul goes on later in this chapter to connect the resurrection of Jesus with the whole thing of Christianity being true or false. In fact, he said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in, we've done this before, in vain, and you're still in your sins. I, essentially, he's saying, This is the children's paraphrase, if Christ has not been raised, you can throw your Bible out the window and do whatever you want because it's not true. So, these are what I would say are the core beliefs that are within that creed. This is what I'm going to call historic Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that there has never been somebody who calls themselves a Christian who doesn't affirm one of these things. I'm saying this is what defines true Christianity. This is what Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years. Yes, we argue about tongues. We argue about baptism, sprinkling or dunking, and some other theological things. But real Christianity is going to affirm these things, So I would argue that any form of Christianity that divorces itself from the reliability and authority and inerrancy of the scriptures or divorces itself from the death and resurrection of Jesus as being for our sins, not just for some other purpose, but for our sins is not historic Christianity. Okay, are we all tracking on what Christ, good old Christianity is? Okay, now we're going to try to define progressive Christianity. What do progressive Christians believe? Now, this can be a bit tougher to define. The reason it's a bit tough to define is because you might find one progressive Christian that would actually affirm all of the things we just said. And you might find another that won't affirm any of them. And the reason that it's tough to define progressive Christianity is because the whole way that it's defined is different than how traditional Christianity or historic Christianity is defined. Historic Christianity is defined basically by a set of beliefs. I hate to break it down so simply. We all know it's so much more than that. But there are certain things you must believe to call yourself a Christian. You have to believe Jesus existed. You have to believe that he died for our sins, that he was resurrected. There are certain things that you must believe in order to call yourself a Christian. Well, progressive Christianity is not defined that way. It's more defined through a postmodern lens of relativism. So it's the idea that Christianity itself is progressive. This is why progressive Christians and historic Christians can't even hardly ever talk to each other because they are they are talking from completely different ballparks. Like we're not even in the same ballpark. So progressive Christianity, if I had to bring it down to one tenant, is really the idea that Christianity itself is progressing. Let's look at the word progress, what that means. According to dictionary.com, it's a movement toward a goal or to a further or higher stage. Developmental activity, advancement in general, growth, or development, continuous improvement. So I think we would all agree that progress can be a really good thing, right? We want to progress in our faith, We want to progress and grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. We want to progress and grow in our ability to uh, manifest the fruits of the Spirit in our life. We want to grow in our understanding of Jesus. We want to become mature Christians. That's progress. But there's a big difference between us progressing in our understanding of an objective truth and that objective truth itself changing. Does that make sense? So we progress in our faith, but the eternal truths of who God is don't change. And that's sort of the biggest disagreement between progressive Christians and historic Christians. There's another category that I've discovered which I'm going to talk about in a second after a blog post I wrote there's a there's a second or third category in here and that's christians who are progressive christians who don't realize they're progressive christians <laughs> i've met a lot of i like helped them discover that they're actually progressive after i wrote this blog post we'll talk about that in a second but that's because they are seeing their christianity through that relativistic pluralistic lens but they don't realize it But we know from Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. So to get some kind of an idea of the language they use and how we can even get to a better understanding of what progressive Christians believe, let's go to some progressive Christian thought leaders and see what they have to say. So there is a progressive blogger named John Pavlovitz. Has anyone heard of John Pavlovitz? His blogs are radically popular. And so he wrote a blog post called Explaining Progressive Christianity, otherwise known as Christianity. So he's kind of saying the same thing I am. I'm saying Christianity is only one thing. He's saying it's only one thing. We agree on that. We disagree on what it actually is. So here's what he has to say. He said, progressive Christianity is not about apologizing for what we become as we live this life and openly engage the faith we grew up with. This is important. There are no sacred cows, only the relentless, sacred search for truth. He goes on to say, tradition, dogma, and doctrine are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity, and as such, are all equally vulnerable to the prejudices, fears, and biases of those it touched. Now, at first blush, we could look at this and say, well, I mean, I kind of get what he's saying. I mean, if somebody comes to me and they say something about God, I know that they have certain biases and prejudices that that information is passing through certain filters that are affecting the way they see those truths. But what we have to understand with most progressive Christians, especially the more prominent and vocal ones like John Pavlovitz, is he's not just talking about you and me. He's not just talking about Tozer and C.S. Lewis and Augustine and Chesterton. He's actually talking about the biblical writers themselves. The things they recorded, the way they saw God, was passing through the hands of flawed humanity. Their biases, their prejudices, their cultural filters were affecting what they ended up writing in Scripture. Therefore, there are no sacred cows. He's talking about essential doctrines as much as any doctrine. We're going to take a whole new look at the whole thing, is what he's saying. So what this really very subtly does is undermine the idea of biblical authority. Right? Because if you relegate the Bible to, it's this great book that records what they thought about God at the time, it's really no longer authoritative, it's more of an encyclopedia. So this is another way of defining progressive Christianity, which is how they view, that right there, the Bible. So generally speaking, now again, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, progressive Christians do not view the Bible as the final authority for truth and for faith and practice in our lives. And I'll go on to another prominent progressive Christian voice to help us understand this. So probably the the granddaddy of them all, Brian McLaren. Have any of you heard of Brian McLaren? Okay, a few more have heard of him than the other one. He is arguably the most prominent voice in the progressive world. He's written books and blogs, and um, he's very winsome, very gentle, very engaging in his way of speaking. And um, he wrote a book called A New Kind of Christianity, And so here's what he says in that book. He says, I'm recommending we read the Bible as an inspired library. This inspired library preserves, presents, and inspires an ongoing and rigorous conversation with and about God, a living and vital civil argument into which we are all invited and through which God is revealed. And then he goes on to say later in that chapter, Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in Scripture like fossils in layers of sediment. Okay, so to unpack what he's saying here, Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts. So when Moses recorded what he recorded in the first five books of the Bible, that was his best attempt to communicate for us what people believed about God at that time. See, again, he's not talking about you and me. This goes back, all of this goes back to an attack on the Bible. So he's saying that scripture is really more like fossils, like as evolution happens, as we understand God better, as God continues to speak to us about who he is, we can look back at what Moses wrote and we can say, well, he got that wrong. It's kind of like if we see scripture like photographs. Like, the progressive Christians will tell you, I value the Bible highly. I have a very high view of Scripture. You'll hear that language. In fact, there are a few that will even say they affirm inerrancy and authority and inspiration of Scripture. But what they mean by those words is very different than what we mean. So they'll, they'll say that they have a very high view of scripture, but they're looking at it from a completely different lens. They're looking at it like a dusty set of encyclopedias. Oh, what did they believe in, you know, what did the Jews believe in 500 BC? Let's, you know, we can look at this and kind of get a picture of... What they understood about God at that time, you know, the whole sacrificial system, you know, they thought they heard that from God, but now we've grown to a higher and wiser view. We know that wasn't really God talking. That's the kind of mindset that that goes on. So if we see scripture like uh, a collection of photographs, we look back at these Bible stories and go, wow, they that's what they thought of God at that time. We can look back on that and we can judge it and say, boy, you know, there are some things in the Bible that are really tough to deal with. You know, that's just their best understanding of God. And that all comes out in what they eventually write down in Scripture. So by slightly changing the filter through which we read the Bible, progressive Christianity then makes... We ourselves and our instincts, our feelings, and biases into that authoritative source for what we should believe. So, this is kind of like humanism 101. This is really like now I am the final authority for my life. And that is why you can have one progressive Christian affirm the resurrection and another one not affirm the resurrection. Now, I mentioned before that I met several progressive Christians that didn't realize they were progressive Christians at the time. I, about a year ago, uh, thanks to Amy Hall, uh, I met her at, the, at this conference, and I was talking to her about blogging, and I'm like, I don't really like to give my own opinions in my blogs. I just like to kind of assembly, like, put content together and like make it real simple for people to understand. And she's like, no, you should give your opinion in your blog. And so I went home, and I wrote this blog post called Five Signs your church might be heading toward progressive Christianity. So I really took her literally that people wanted my opinion on something. <laughs> well, this is by far my most viewed, liked, and shared blog on my website. And it sparked a tremendous amount of pushback. And what is one of the most interesting forms of pushback I got on this blog post, and I'm going to walk you through the points in just a second, is that there were so many Christians who said, wait, I, I, but, but these points you've made, I believe those things, but I'm not progressive. <laughs> but in this blog post... I laid out five points, and it's not just for if your church is going heading toward progressive Christianity, but really if people you know or you're hearing some of these kind of phrases, this is what progressive Christianity sounds like. So we're going to play a game, and I mean this all in fun, not as a derogatory or pejorative, but you might be a progressive Christian if... Okay, you know, Jeff Foxworthy, like, you might be a redneck if? We're going to play a game of you might be a progressive Christian if. And these are the five points I had in my blog post. So you might be a progressive Christian if you have a lowered view of the Bible. And what I mean by that is traditionally... Christians have accepted the Bible to be authoritative and the inspired Word of God. And if you doubt that, I've got another blog post where I go back to the church fathers and give quotes about what they had to say about the Bible. That generally speaking, even if the word inerrant didn't come till later, this is what Christians and Jesus himself believed about Scripture. That it was authoritative, inerrant, and inspired by God. So... There are a couple of progressive Christian writers. One is someone named Rachel Held Evans. How many have heard of Rachel Held Evans? Okay, a few more. And anybody heard of Matthew Vines? Okay. So both Matthew Vines and Rachel Held Evans, to the best of my knowledge, last time I kind of looked at their stuff, would say, we have a high view of Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture, in the inspiration of Scripture, But Matthew Vines, as some of you know, spent two years poring over the scriptures and came out on the other side of it, believing that the Bible doesn't just affirm same-sex relationships, but actually celebrates them. And we are the ones who are being harmful and sinful for having this idea about homosexual couples uh, that is just, in his opinion, completely ungodly. And actually, he used the word harmful. He told Sean McDowell in a debate that your belief, just your view of this is harmful, but he says he believes in the inerrancy, authority, and inspiration of scripture. So it's sort of like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. If you've talked to a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, you know that they'll use some of these same words, but they mean very different things when they use them. So a good thing that I think it was Mary Jo talked about is to ask the question, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by inerrant? What do you mean by authoritative? What do you mean by inspired? And I can even say from personal experience, in this church I was in, I asked the pastor point blank, do you believe the Bible is divinely inspired? And he said, absolutely, 100% I do. And because of his answer, I stayed with the class even longer. But what I came to discover as the class went on is that what he meant by inspired Was that the Bible was inspired by God, but really on the same level as like a C.S. Lewis or a Tozer or some great preacher of the past. And he even compared it to his own sermons. It's inspired on that level. And so he's affirming the word, but changing the meaning. So some things you might say if you have a lowered view of the Bible is you might hear this phrase. The Bible is a human book. It's partially true, Right. You might hear a progressive Christian say, I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. I think Paul got that wrong. Remember, we're evolved now. We're at a higher, wiser view. You might hear, or you might say, if, if you're a progressive Christian, the Bible condones immorality like rape and slavery, so we are obligated to reject what it says in certain places in order to be right with God. The second thing, you might be a progressive Christian if you emphasize feelings over facts. Again, that's making yourself the authoritative source for truth rather than the scripture. So you might say, well, that Bible verse doesn't resonate with me. You might say, I thought homosexuality was a sin until I met and befriended some gay people. You might say, I just can't believe Jesus would send good people to hell. And see, all of those phrases I just used are very feelings-based. They're, they're very uh, subjective, right? Feelings over facts. You might be a progressive Christian if you are open to reinterpreting essential Christian doctrines. Now, I'm not just talking about taking a second look at, you know, continuationism or cessationism. I'm I'm talking about taking a second look at the virgin birth and the, the deity of Jesus. And by the way, all these phrases I'm giving you that you might say if you're a progressive Christian, I didn't make any of them up. I've gotten accused. People have said, you know, you're just exaggerating. No, I heard these out of the mouths of a progressive Christian or took them off of a blog or out of a book. These are verbatim. So if you're open for the essentials to be reinterpreted, you might say something like, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual to speak truth. We can learn a great, truthful story from a mythical situation, more like an allegory or like a myth. You might say, the church's historic position on sexuality is archaic and needs to be updated within a modern framework. See, the progressive Christian mind is usually going to be in step with culture. You might say the idea of a literal hell is offensive to non-Christians and needs to be reinterpreted. You might be a progressive Christian if historic terms get redefined, if you tend to redefine key terms. I talked about that term inspiration getting redefined. You might say something like, God wouldn't punish sinners, he is love. Or, sure, the Bible's authoritative, but we've just misunderstood it for the first 2,000 years of church history. You might say, it's not our job to talk to anyone about sin. It's just our job to love them. Which, of course, requires redefining the word love, doesn't it? You might be a progressive Christian if the gospel means something more along the lines of social justice rather than blood atonement. Remember how I talked about how important that part, Jesus died, the for our sins part, one of the major key factors with progressive Christians is a denial of not just substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement or whatever you want to call it. I'm talking just blood atonement in general. The whole idea that Jesus died for our sins, that, that that was a necessary sacrifice to make, is largely abandoned in the progressive Christian world. It's seen as something that's harmful to people, psychologically damaging to children. And something that is not true. And so the gospel then really becomes more of a works gospel. I actually heard a progressive Christian pastor give a sermon on the gospel, and he pared it down to this when Jesus looks at you and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant, he's not going to say, Well believed, my good and faithful servant. He's going to say, Well done. And so it's largely pulling from all different religious systems and what, do, what, what is the one thing that pretty much all religions and belief systems have in common? I did some research on this and the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, it pops up all throughout history. It's something that a lot, if not most, religions have in common. Be nice to each other. <laughs> do good things. But that's common sense. That's written in our moral code. We know that, right? That's why, you know, Confucius knew that before Jesus said it, because that's in our moral code. We have the law written on our hearts, right? But with progressive Christians, it all becomes about social justice. That term gets co-opted to mean pro-LGBT, pro-choice. Not all progressive Christians are pro-choice. Many vocal ones are very pro-life. So I don't want to put that in a box. But really, again, it's just that subjective thing. Whatever you think is good, what you think is a good work. Social justice. And so you might say, sin doesn't separate us from God. We are made in his image, and he called us good. You're not a sinner. Isn't that great news? (laughs) That's not true. I'm just saying that. You might say, if you're a progressive Christian, God didn't actually require a sacrifice for our sins. The first Christians picked up on the pagan practice of animal sacrifice and told the Jesus story in similar terms. Y'all heard of Rob Bell? I pulled that off his blog. We don't really need to preach the gospel. We just need to show love by bringing justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. Well, then it all comes down to what you mean by oppressed. And again, these are all things I've pulled off blogs and heard from the mouth. So, how can we best prepare ourselves and our kids to interact with these ideas? Well, there's a commonly repeated anecdote. I don't know if it's true, because I try to do some research, but it's a good anecdote, so I'm going to use it anyway, okay? But you've heard the anecdote that federal agents, when they're being trained on how to spot counterfeit money, what do they do? How do they train them? They handle real money. They don't necessarily go and learn what all the different counterfeits look like. They just handle real money all the time. So that way, when a counterfeit comes across their desk, they can spot it instantly. It doesn't matter what it looks like because they know what the, uh, the real thing looks like. So in other words, when it comes to Christianity, you will easily spot a counterfeit if you know the real thing. You're here. You're at an apologetics conference. You're doing that. Bravo. Good job. And so I would say, like Natasha mentioned, become biblically literate. Make sure your kids are biblically literate. Study apologetics and theology like you're doing. Learn about church history. Really, I have found in so many conversations with progressive Christians that it really comes down to knowing church history. Because they will misrepresent a lot of our church fathers and and, uh, exploit the weaknesses of some of our Uh, saints of the past and you know focus on that rather than the good they did and it can be a tricky thing but if you know the real thing you'll be able to spot the counterfeit and that's the main point and that's what we need to to give to our children so remember my little girl I showed you in the beginning that's not my little girl but you don't know that because you don't know her I know her and I know that's a picture of a little girl I found on the internet That looks a lot like my real daughter. You get the point. There's nobody in my family that would be fooled by this picture. They don't have to study that picture to know that's not my daughter. They know instantly. You probably didn't know that because you don't know her. But if you know the real thing, you will always be able to spot the counterfeit. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to my website, alisachilders.com. If you click under Popular Posts, you'll find that blog post entitled Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. I've also got a podcast. It's my very first podcast uh, that I recorded called What Is Progressive Christianity? And I covered some of this in a little bit more. I interacted with some more of the arguments I've gotten from progressive Christians in that podcast. But ultimately... I have a heart for progressive Christians. I love them. I find them typically to be very sincere, very genuine in wanting to do the right thing and to get it right. But when you divorce yourself from the reliability and the authority of Scripture, it's it's whatever you want it to be, and that's chaos, and it doesn't lead to a a firm foundation of belief. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this session and for taking a minute to just kind of learn about something new. I pray that... Uh, the, the heart of love in which it's been meant to be communicated would come across. And I just pray that we would all be aware of this issue, that we could serve you and love you and, and have a love for truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can go to elisachilders.com and click the subscribe button, or you can simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.